Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. There are lots of things I think that go on with when we think about marriage and divorce. For some people there is pain because of parents and some people live with a distrust in marriage and some single people are very scared of getting married because they've seen it and witnessed it and feel like why would I want to go into something institution that feels so vulnerable and it might throw up stuff for us if we are married and we think gosh there are things in our marriage that we all have as married people that we are we are dealing with there was an older couple who, I think, they, I think it was like their 60th wedding anniversary or something. Like they got to a really, really long way into their marriage. And they were interviewed by a TV presenter, like, isn't it amazing, like 80 something or whatever, in their 60, 60th or so wedding anniversary. And the interviewer asked them, have you ever considered divorce over this time? And the guy piped up and said, divorce, no, but murder, yeah. <laughs> It's like every marriage has got stuff. You're like, okay, we need to deal with some things. So we want to offer prayer. And so if that's you, like, I, and we, we want to be a church where coming forward for prayer is not something that feels like there's a big spotlight on my head now because I've come. There must be a huge problem with this person because everyone go away gossiping. No, we want to be a prayer. We all recognize we're all broken and we're all sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. And actually asking for help is a sign of strength because in that place we can know God. Amen. So what I want to do today is just three things. I want to define marriage. I want to talk about what Paul talks about in this passage about divorce and remarriage and then I want to speak to those who are married. Um, Last week I uh, assumed what marriage was and put sex within marriage for us as Christians but what I want to do is really just put forward the biblical teaching of what marriage is positively because Paul talks about divorce which is really the antithesis what happens when a marriage breaks down so to understand divorce really we have to understand what is marriage in the first place and as we know in our culture the question simply what is marriage is just highly debated today so I want to say five things that the Bible says about marriage very quickly to just place forward what we are talking about For some, if you've come to church, this is not new, but I just want to say it for us as a church. Firstly, marriage is a union between a man and a woman for life. As we looked at last week in Genesis, we had Adam and God formed Eve from Adam. So from one being, two beings were created, both made in the image of God. And in Eve, Adam had his equal and opposite And as we looked at, when Adam and Eve get married in the scriptures, we're told that two become one. So there is this opposite coming together into this union or a reunion of what was once one together, male and female, husband and wife. That's what the Bible defines as marriage for life. One man and one woman. 
And it's secondly for the raising of children, that we are designed as human beings to grow up with a father figure and a mother figure. Because the father represents the image of God and the mother represents the image of God. And together with that parenting structure within which a man and a woman give birth to a child, mainly the woman, but you know what I'm saying, there is a, there is a, a nurturing environment in which children can grow up to be healthy, independent, who love and trust God themselves. And marriage is something that happens because of God. It's not simply a human institution. It's not simply something that we've put together, which is how the discourse today goes. That's what it feels like. Like, why does the church have a monopoly on defining what marriage is? Why can't these views be incorporated and it be an ever-evolving thing? We can't define marriage ourselves because it's been given to us by God. And we're told that in Mark 10, Jesus says that when a man and a woman come together and they become a husband and wife and they are united, what what Jesus says is that God did that. He says, whom God put together, let no one put asunder. Jesus' understanding is when he saw a husband and a wife, that wasn't like this was their decision to get married. Yes, it was. But... God was involved in putting these two people together. There is a moment that happens, I'm sure, in every marriage when the husband or the wife or both wake up one morning and wonder, have I made a mistake? Anyone ever thought that? Is this really the one? Ever wondered that? Maybe she's not the one and the one is still out there and I mistook her for that one. And in our culture today, it can feel like that, like with apps and things like that. It can kind of feel like it's just dizzying. Like, how, how do you know of these hundreds of thousands of people, like, which is the one? And there is this idea that there is one soulmate out there. And if, if I, once I find, I'm going to know there's going to be a big like arrow on their heads. That's the one. I'm going to get married. It's all going to be fine. How do you know if this is the one? Well, I think Jesus would say, you know, this is the one if you are married to them. (laughs) If you wake up and you're married to them, they're the one because God put you together. There's no other person out there. And you might think, but we're so different. That's just being human or male and female. And you've got to work it out together. And what we do is when we get married, there is a moment in the wedding ceremony where and all like the traditional Anglican wedding service is like so symbolism and it's rich with symbolism and there is deliberate moments where the groom and the bride will be standing before the minister and they won't look at each other and they will make declarations to each other and to God because they are not standing first and foremost to each other, holding each other's hands, giving each other rings, but the groom and the um, bride are standing first and foremost before God, making their promises that they will be faithful until they die to one another before God, because this is the doing of God. God is at the center of marriage. Fourthly, marriage is an unconditional relationship. There are lots of ideas that float around culture about marriage today. Um, You know, it's like personal fulfillment. If I feel like this person will fulfill me, then I will get married to them. I've got needs. I feel lonely. I feel empty. This person, they make me feel special and unique. And so we want to get married. 
it's for romance and so there's so much discourse and like what you know why does romance seem to die after marriage and people are like well it's not what i thought about it was better before marriage and so people think why would i get married because it seems to be better and all these things about because it's it's romance and so we've got a relationships are about or it's a contract which is why many people say why why do i need a piece of paper to prove my love for this person it feels like a very like just fleshy thing to do like what well, i don't need a piece of paper a contractor i love them i'm gonna i'm gonna prove my love by just loving them the thing with all of the ideas that float around our culture today is that they are conditional relationships you know people talk about uh not wanting to divorce but separating or realizing that we've grown apart or our lives have changed or our interests have changed or we were too young and so things have all of these all of this language kind of making out that our marriage in the first place was conditional on at that time they made me feel special at that time i felt whole at that time these things these things were met in my life now 20 years later kids have grown up they've gone off like we haven't got any interests anymore so we're going to kind of just do our own thing be friends but so it's this idea of actually underlying all of that was a contract but in the bible marriage is not a contract with conditions of like as long as you make me feel special i'm here for you in the bible it is an unconditional commitment to loving the other come what may in sickness and in health in wealth and in poverty i am here for you marriage is a moment where all the bridges are burned there is no turning back all that i am i give to you and all that i have i share with you those are the commitments that are made at marriage and it's saying i'm burning all the bridges my eyes aren't going anywhere else i'm with you which creates an unbelievably safe place to nurture love because if you know that you've burned all your bridges there's no option b here we have to work this out and i want to work it out with you and if your spouse says bridges i have no other options but you work this it creates an unbelievably safe situation for you to be vulnerable and to let your guard down and to be real and to love one another it is a relationship without conditions the only condition is till death do us part till that point i'm with you and fifthly is to display the loyalty and the faithfulness of god to us as i said last week maybe the most important sentence written about marriage written by paul saying this mystery if you're married you know this is a profound mystery he is a mystery or she is a mystery why do i still not understand them this mystery this marriage is referring to christ and the church it is not finally about us it is about displaying the faithfulness and the loyalty of god so marriage is a, a man and a woman coming together in lifelong loyalty to one another to raise children in a covenantal unconditional relationship to display the loyalty and the faithfulness of god this is marriage and within this vision of marriage paul brings this teaching about divorce which is why he says in the first section of this little passage he says this he says to the married 
because he's been talking to the single people and next week we're going to be addressing singleness but to the married this week i give this charge not i but the lord because he says jesus has already said some things on this the wife should not separate from her husband but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled back to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife the basic teaching is on the basis of this understanding of marriage don't get divorced work it out but (laughs) there is real life right and there is sin and there is brokenness and there is pain in life that we have to deal with and so while paul says don't get divorced church he also has teaching to those who are getting divorced or who have been divorced and so he goes on to say a few things about divorce and there are really two questions that arise from this passage because paul having said don't get divorced then makes these concessions if you will or these permissions in some situations that divorce might be allowed so i want to ask firstly where is divorce allowed and then what about remarriage first question is this in what circumstances is divorce allowed this situation here there was a unique situation in the gospel had come to corinth and it's very early in the the days of the church and people were growing up in a promiscuous society and spouses maybe sometimes not together one the wife or the husband were becoming christians so you've got to imagine a scenario where these corinthian couple with money and kind of just sexual liberty within their marriage they kind of did whatever they liked and like the wife comes home one day on a and an afternoon it says hi honey uh, hi where have you been oh i've been to that church down the road like the crazy one where they you know, speak in tongues and it's all a bit of a mess but there's some like spiritual power there and so i came along because phoebe invited me or whatever and and then the preacher said look if you want to know jesus you can know him today and in that moment i like i met him like and i just knew that he was alive and he would forgive my sins and so i, I i've actually become a christian I so you've got to imagine this moment where the unbelieving husband is thinking, you what did he what? Like, you became a, a what? Like, there would have been rumours about this group who were like Christians who actually seemed quite chaste. And like, this was not a good thing for the spouse. This was creating tensions in relationships. And so what was happening is that some of the non-Christians in the marriage were saying, I'm out of here. If like if you're going to say like we have to be faithful to one another then that's that's not what i came into and some of the christians were saying maybe i should just be single and not have sex anymore and i should just walk with jesus because he's now my true husband and i'll just live with him and so paul is writing into this situation where there were married many married couples where one member of the married couple were a christian and one wasn't and so he writes these things he says to the rest i say i not the lord 
and that's not him giving his opinion it's just saying Jesus never spoke on this issue this is still like I'm still teaching apostolic truth here he says that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him he should not divorce her and this is what we read in 1 Corinthians 7 throughout Paul is radically equal in how he addresses the husbands and the wives Notice this. And so he says again, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean as it is. They are holy. What is Paul saying by this holiness thing? What he's saying is that there are probably some Christians who are thinking, maybe this marriage isn't really what God wants, and maybe it's not a righteous marriage because I'm a Christian devoted to Jesus, and they're not a Christian devoted to Jesus, and so maybe this isn't what God wants because we're not actually united. And what Paul is saying is, no, your presence as a spirit-filled believer, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, trusting in Christ, actually sanctifies or sets apart your marriage and God blesses your marriage even if your spouse doesn't trust in Jesus we know that they're not Christians because later he says you don't know whether your husband or your wife is actually going to become a Christian down the line so it's not that by you trusting in Christ they magically become Christians as well but they are blessed by your presence it's this principle that in the Old Testament oftentimes people felt that if I touched someone or if I touched something I would become unholy and I would become unclean but when Jesus comes along he radically reverses that with the power of God and wherever Jesus goes he he touches sin and uncleanness and his power goes forth from him so he does not get contaminated by the world but he blesses the world with his power and so in a marriage if there is one person who is not a christian and there is one who is a christian what they have in the power of god does not make them defiled but actually flows through them to bless the other so it says stay where you are in your marriage stick it out work it out be there this comes on later but in the in the very end of the chapter there is a very real tension that comes when a christian is married to a non-christian and i'm very aware that in a christian pool that is ever shrinking <laughs> in the uk that the options for young guys or old guys or young girls or old girls women girls women ladies it's so hard you know what i mean females it can feel like it's shrinking so the temptation to look abroad and like hey well is hot so-and-so nice so-and-so he showed interest in me maybe it could work there are some real problems in that kind of relationship that we're going to get onto. but i want to say it now because it's prevalent okay that one's for free that you didn't even want um what does Paul say in this case? He says this in verse 15. You stick it out. If your unbelieving partner is willing to stay with you, stay married. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved and this is covenant language that when we come into a covenant we come under a binding covenant and so we are bound to that person until we die and so when paul says they are not enslaved what he is saying is you are now free from the covenant that you were in the covenant has been broken because your unbelieving spouse has walked away 
He does say later, maybe just remain and you could try and be reconciled. But if you are a Christian and they are not a Christian, they walk away. You are now not enslaved, which means I think you are free. That you did not sin in that situation, in the divorce that has happened. And then he goes on to say, God has called you to peace. So there could be so much fighting and aggravation, but called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? You don't. And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You don't. So the first thing is this. If your unbelieving spouse walks away, there seems to be a righteous type of divorce where you are faultless. The second thing is this. Paul says in verse 15, he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. And then he says this phrase, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And there was an American scholar called Wayne Grudem, a systematic theologian, and he's done some study around this phrase, in such cases, and trying to understand what did Paul mean by in such cases. And in many other parts of literature, this means that there are other situations that are like this, but are different. And he concluded that there are some situations where one member of a marriage acts in such a way persistently that they actually break the covenant that they were in. And it would be very tempting, and we are so prone to want lists and things and understanding, to give a list of what this could be. But as we all know, every relationship and every individual is entirely different. But there does seem to be sometimes when one member of a marriage acts so persistently to attack and break the covenant that there is a moment where it is ir ir irrevocably broken and in such cases, one member might be free. The one thing I do want to say, it feels important to say this, is that if as Claire has like, kindly shared with her situation, if there are, if you are in a marriage, and you just speak to us, and there is abuse, physical, sexual, verbal, we do not condone staying in that relationship. In fact, maybe the first thing you need to do is remove yourself from the situation and talk to somebody. We don't know how it will all end up, but there needs to be a removal from that situation because someone through physical or sexual or verbal abuse can break a covenant. And I trust there's no one here, but we want to just say that, okay? Alright. I think that's as deep as we go. Also, people go for prayer, don't, you know, we're not making assumptions about anything. Third thing is this, and this is the last thing reasons why there might be a, uh, a righteous divorce from one party. Jesus talked in Matthew 19 about sexual immorality. The sexual immorality on the behalf of one, one member of the spouse, or one member of the marriage, actually brings such an attack to the core union of what it is to be a husband and wife, to be physically and sexually united, that that attacks the union to such a degree that Jesus actually in Matthew 19 says there is a divorce that is permissible if your spouse has committed sexual immorality. It doesn't say that you have to, which is why I think I, I just, in awe of Claire and the grace of God and how she forgave her husband, you don't have to, but there is permission in that moment if the spouse has sinned against you like that. 
I was struck this week reading Jeremiah 3, where God identifies himself as a divorced person. It's really shocking language. He said that the God's people have sinned against him so much and they have been so spiritually promiscuous, committing adultery against him, that he gives his people a bill of divorce. It's like amazing language. So if you are divorced, God knows something of that emotion. He's not like aloof watching on. God then pursued us and was even willing to come down in the flesh in the second person of the Trinity and come to die for us, his bride, to win us back. He gave everything. When he made a covenant with us, it was to death. And he came and died for us so that we might be born again and be reunited, God, with creation. And so he comes and pursues us. But allows us in our frailty and our weakness some outs at points. That's the first question. The second question is this what about remarriage? Two, it's interesting, there's two things that Paul says here. Because in the first, he says, You're not to remarry. He says in verse 10, To the married, I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So he doesn't allow a moment of remarriage in this moment, which is similar to what Jesus' teaching is in, in Mark 10, where Jesus says that if you initiate a divorce unlawfully, so if you are the sinful party, you actually walk away from a marriage through your own sin, or you just give up unrighteously, and then if you go and marry another person after you've been divorced, you are actually committing adultery with that person. And so Paul seems to be following this line of teaching from Mark 10 and says, look, if you seem to be talking to men and women who have been initiating a divorce, he says, you need to either stay single or try and find a reconciliation with your husband or your wife. But then later he goes on and says in verse 15, as we looked at, in such cases a brother or a sister is not enslaved, as in you are free, and I think you should be considered free to then remarry because in this situation the other member of the marriage has walked away and has been the sinful party oh that it was that simple but this is what Paul seems to think that if there were one member of the marriage who is faultless and here they were all sinful but faultless in the situation they are free to remarry if that person is not faultless and they are the guilty party the instruction of the Bible pieces to stay single. It's tough. What does that mean if, if you find yourself in a marriage where you are wondering whether it's a righteous marriage or an unrighteous marriage? Because I know what I hear sometimes in your life, even the thought of contemplating singleness and what that would mean is Christ that I could like. So what happens if you find yourself in a marriage where you're actually, in Jesus' terms, committing adultery. Paul says later in this chapter 7, he says, just wherever you are, stay. So if you find yourself in a marriage where actually you were the one who sinned in the first place in your first marriage, and now you're in a second marriage, Paul's instruction later here is, stay where you are. And I think he would say more than that, enjoy your spouse, love them, 
enjoy God in that moment, make it work, because God's grace is broader and bigger than our kindness and our grace. And can I tell you how broad and how deep and how big his grace goes? Yes. <laughs> you know King David in the Old Testament? He was a guy who sinned. And I'm often encouraged by him because he was mightily used by God. And yet, he had some deep character flaws, personality flaws, weaknesses in his life that caused havoc for his family for generations. And he was, he was married and there was one summer where he should have been at war with his comrades and yet chose to stay at home and be lazy. And there is not much good that comes of staying at home and being lazy for day after day after day. That is a recipe for disaster. And in this summer of laziness, David sees this woman, Bathsheba, and who was not his wife, and her husband was out of war. And seeing her and being the king, and in a horrible abuse of power, brought Bathsheba to the palace and slept with her, committed adultery, against his own wife and wives, which is another story not commended by the Bible. It's already a problem. Brought Bathsheba into his, his, his uh, palace, committed adultery with Bathsheba. She then comes back later with news that I'm pregnant because of you. And so what does David do as a righteous king of God's people? Well, sin gives birth to sin, right? If you find yourself in a loop of sin, you just keep, just keep like, you lose the plot at some point. And so he calls Bathsheba's husband back home, hoping that they would come together and be intimate, and everyone would be like, it's their child, it's all fine. And yet, her husband, being a righteous man, did not go home to identify with the comrades who were still at war. And so he had another problem. And so he sends him back to war, carrying a note with his own death sentence so that he would be sent to the front line and be surely killed. So he killed one of his best men, a friend of his, so that he could cover up his own sin. And when his sin brings Bathsheba into his household, and then she becomes his wife. This is an unrighteous mess of a situation. Abuse of power, sexual immorality, murder, lies, implications on his family, spiritual implications. And what does God do with this marriage between David and Bathsheba? Bathsheba then gives birth to a son called Solomon. And it was this marriage that David had with Bathsheba, not his other marriages, but this marriage that he had fallen into through sin, that God says, Solomon, he is going to be the next king of Israel. I am going to bless the nation with this boy. And not only this boy will be the king of Israel, but from his line, I will send my son, God of God, light of life, life of life. I am going to come as Solomon's final heir to be the king, not just of Israel, but of the nations. From this marriage, I am going to bless the nations. And we are here today because we worship the son of someone who was born in the line of an unrighteous 
marriage. Isn't that amazing? How far and wide and broad is the grace of God? So has God finished with you if you are in a relationship that you're like, oh, should I be in this one? By no means. His grace is abundant, say Lord. Amen. He embraces us. We as a church, we recognise we're all sinful and we welcome everyone in the same way that Jesus welcomed me. I hope that we would welcome everyone with all of our sin. Single people, married people, divorced people, widowed people, men, women, whoever we are, this church welcomes everybody because the grace of God has been poured out on me and I have no right to not pour it out on everyone else. Amen. Amen. Let me just say a few last words to the married couples. Gosh, time's going. Um, all I really want to say is stick in there. Stick in there. Don't give up. Victoria and I will be married 16 years in a couple of weeks. And it's gone like that. And we, we have had some really beautiful moments and we've had some super low moments. Low moments where we've been sat opposite each other, honestly not knowing what to say or even any power to say anything. Just wondering, like just looking at a blank wall of a future, like how, how there are some differences that just seem so kind of, how, how do these come, we're so different. I don't know, like, the longer you go on in a marriage, you are united increasingly, but you also more aware of, like, we're so different. So this whole idea of being compatible, it's like being married for 16 years or 20 years or 30 years, and you realise that is not a good foundation for a marriage. But we have slowly and are still learning to forgive and listen, be gracious and be patient, and to stick in there and to find help we have been through a number of occasions where we've had to ask for help from older couples in the church. We've been through a number of occasions where we've seen marriage counsellors, counsellors for us individually, because we've just got stuck and we're like, we need help to make it through this. But what we have today, after 16 years of looking at it, because we don't really shout, I mean, we're just not, it's not our personality, it's not a godly thing, it's just like, I just go quiet. I'm like, it's not a helpful trait. I'm just like, I don't know what to say. Like, Tell me something. What you're, I'm like, oh. we don't. But like, we we're learning how how to come together. But what we now have, because of working these things through, is so much deeper and richer and better and more trusting. Insecurities just slowly evaporating over time. I wouldn't exchange 16 years into marriage for that first day that we had, as good as that day was. And I just want to implore us to keep going. And if you feel like you're at one of those moments where you're like, we're kind of just looking at each other not knowing what to say, like, please don't feel like that's really weird because I think that's just pretty normal at moments in a marriage. Get. Amen.